Hey, just a quick pause to let you know that this summer, from June 28th to July 1st, I'll be hosting a summer lettering seminar in my Berlin studio. This is an exclusive three days intensive session limited to only 10 participants and it's designed to help you fast track your progress with lettering. It's a unique opportunity to learn from me, get personalized attention and feedback and live with a masterpiece of your own. Together with your registration, you will have access to a bunch of other experiences like a private guided visit to the Museum of Letters in Berlin and a business Q&A with me. This is a one-time chance to learn in person with me and I'm not sure when I will be offering this again in the future. So if you want to join, this is your chance. Plus, when you register by May 5th and use discount code BERLIN, 2023, you will get $200 off your registration. So go to martinaflor.com slash summer lettering seminar to join now. Don't forget to use your discount code. Again, martinaflor.com slash summer lettering seminar and join us this summer. Now back to the show. Hello and welcome to episode number 100 of Open Studio. I'm your host, Martina Flor, and in this interview-style episode of the show, I have honest conversations with artists, designers, and creatives to uncover their story and specific tactics they use to build a successful career around their skills and the work they love doing. Today, I'm celebrating the episode number 100 of this podcast by having a conversation with Jessica Hish. Jessica Kish is a lettering artist and New York Times bestselling author based in Oakland, California. She specializes in typographical work for logos, film, books, and other commercial applications. Her clients include Wes Anderson, the United States Postal Service, Target, Hallmark, and Penguin Books, and her work has been featured again and again in design and illustration annuals, both in the U.S. and internationally. She's been named a print magazine new visual artist 20 under 30, one of Forbes 30 under 30 in art and design, and ADC Youngan, a person to watch by GD USA, and an Adweek Creative 100. You will love this episode, I know that already, because Jessica is not only a great artist and designer that has accomplished a lot in her career, but also she's great at sharing what she has learned along the way. This conversation is filled with golden nuggets of inspiration, information, and insider tips on finding your style, getting client assignments, and using the things that you're passionate about to inform your next steps. We also touch on parenthood, work-life balance, and how to build a fulfilling career. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Jessica Hirsch. And before we get started, if you have been following this podcast for a while and you have been getting value from it, I want to invite you to celebrate my 100 episodes milestone with me by leaving a review. And I'll tell you why. Your review helps other people like you find this podcast and get value from it. And the other reason is that it also helps me to continue in this podcasting journey And knowing that you're listening and that the things that I share have an impact on your journey makes the whole difference to me. So go ahead, leave this podcast a review and continue to listen to my conversation with Jessica Hirsch. Hello, Jessica. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? 
I'm very happy to have you on the podcast. Jessica, for those that are listening right now, tell us briefly who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Jessica Hish. I live in the East Bay in California. So my office is in Oakland and my house is in Berkeley. Um, but I'm an expat New Yorker. And so that's mm. still a part of my soul. Um, I am primarily a lettering artist, but I also write and illustrate children's books. Um, a big part of my business now is doing logo refresh projects um, on top of regular commercial lettering and things like that. And I've been at it for almost 20 years now. I graduated college in 2006 and have been on my own as a creative since 2009. Um, so ever since, just been working on all, all sorts of projects, film titles, uh, book covers, commercial stuff for ads and all kinds of things. So yeah, just a very wide gamut of work over almost 20 years. <laughs> yes, I mean, you have accomplished so much in your career. And before we dive into the deeds of that. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your origins because I didn't find anything about that online. So tell me a little bit about where you were born and what's your family like. <laughs> That's fun. Um, I feel like there's a little something on my Wikipedia, but probably not much because people don't mostly know about it. It's in the intro of my book, but um, which is called In Progress. Uh, mm. But yeah, I was born in Pennsylvania. Well, actually I was born in South Carolina. Um, but only because my dad was in the Navy and they were stationed there for a minute. But I was mostly raised in Pennsylvania, um, was there from like about age one and a half um, and grew up in a town called Hazleton, which is like it's on the map, but not by much. <laughs> and so uh, it's definitely like a small, like blue collar town for the most part. Um, with a lot of like rural areas to it, like a big part of my childhood was just like riding my bike for miles through farmland and things like that. Um, my parents were very supportive of me as mm. a creative person, but are not creative people. Mm. Um, my dad was a dentist. He retired um, a couple years ago. And then my, and my mom uh, went to school for organic chemistry and was a chemist for a brief moment before mm. she sort of left her career to raise us as kids. Um, my parents split up when I was 14. So I also have a stepmom who was a fifth grade teacher um, and two stepbrothers because of that. And then I have one brother who is a vice principal at a, at a high school in North Carolina. And wow. so it's all very like, not, uh, not the like glamorous art background, or whatever, you know? <laughs> um, but it was great. You know, like I'm, I'm grateful for where I grew up. It was a nice place to grow up at the time, mm. even though it was like a little on the boring side, we spent most of our time in like, um, you know, blockbuster parking lots and stuff like that. <laughs> so it, was, it wasn't there was no like museum trips and blah 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 it was like let's hang out at the gas station um but uh that I feel like also um it allowed me to be like a little bit of a big fish in a small pond when I was younger yeah. which I think might have been helpful for building my confidence in my art because then when I ended up going to art school I went to art school at Tyler School of Art in Philadelphia I was very much a small fish in a big pond even though it's a really tiny school I was just like the hot shit in my high school of being like a person that can do art. And as soon as I went to art school, I was like, oh, all of these people have been taking like college level ceramics classes all summer for years. And here's me being like, I can draw shoes fairly well, you know. Uh, and, so and what did your parents say? What, what did your parents say uh, when, when you decided to go um, to art school? Did you, they support you or were they, they did, hesitant but... about like, hey, yeah, but what? What about that? <laughs> Honestly, I was a little bit on my own at the time. Mm. Um, like my, 
my it was like kind of a gnarly situation with their divorce towards the end and mm. uh my you know just sort of like a lot like it was just tough on all ends and my mom was like really depressed about it so mm. um i didn't really go to visit any schools or anything like that like the only reason i ended up going to tyler was because um their one of their admissions counselors came to my high school and was like looking at portfolios uh, because my high school was like a somewhat big high school. There was like 800 people in my graduating class, which is really big. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Tyler is part of Temple University, which is kind of a state school. It's not quite a state school, but they do a lot of subsidizing for people that are in state. And so if they hadn't come, I don't know where I would have landed because I had mm. like no money saved for college and didn't really like have any plans and didn't have like a big support network of people pushing me towards college. Um, so I'm really grateful that they came and kind of my art teacher was like, she's good. I swear, even though she, her portfolio is lacking because she only started taking art classes because she went to Catholic school and they didn't let her, you know? Like, And so, um, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like I've been really lucky to have mm. supportive people around me. Like my parents were supportive of me going to art school. They definitely didn't put any roadblocks in the way, yeah. but at the same time, like I hear stories of people who were like, traveling around the country with their family, like looking at schools and all. And that just wasn't me. Like I didn't, I wouldn't have applied anywhere if I didn't have like an art teacher that was kind of like up my butt about it. So. And um, how did you so make it to, to support, that. like to be able to afford college? Because you, you mentioned, I, I, I think, or I, I know that in, in the U.S. you need to really have a fund to support your, or to pay for your ed education, right? So how did you go about that? I had, um, I worked ever since I was 14. Mm -hmm. Um, so okay. I worked at, a like a small deli near my house and worked about like 10 to 15 hours a week, um, from that. And then worked all summers. I was a waitress and all kinds of stuff. And so, um, I ended up saving up about $5,000 between that and like, sort of like birthdays and things like just sort of saving money, um, had about that much money saved for college. And then, awesome. uh, which of course which of course is like not much, uh, but, um, but then like Tyler at the time was quite reasonable. Mm. So it was about $9,000 a year, my first year. And by the time mm. I graduated, it was like 13,000 and that was just for tuition. So I just took out a bunch of loans. And then, um, when I was a sophomore, I applied to be a resident assistant. And so I was a resident assistant um, for my sophomore, junior and senior years, which meant that I had free room and board. Mm. And so I got to, I, it was like my job was being there. And then I also worked at the admissions office at school um, to have like spending money. So when I graduated, I had about like $25,000 in loans, which is really low, all things yes. considered for what yeah. a lot of people have. Um, And then I was just like, I was so scared of being in debt that I paid it off like almost immediately. I just like live, I just ate free pizza all the time until I could pay my debt off. <laughs> but now I understand that like some debt is good, you know, like whatever. <laughs> uh, but at the time, um, you know, like the, our parents' generation didn't quite understand what was going on with student loans because mm -hmm. my parents, well, not, not my parents specifically, but a lot of parents were like, student loan debt is good. It's fine. Blah, blah, blah. Because when they went to school, the rates were like 2% or 3% or something. And when sure. I graduated, it was like almost 7%, mm. which is not good debt. So I was kind of wigged out about it and just definitely wanted to get it off my plate as soon as possible. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it worked. It was, you know, just 
working my way through, working in the summers, having a job, being an RA, doing what I could. Uh, but I feel like it really made me appreciate my education just because I would like honestly be laying in bed some mornings and I'd have like a 9 a.m. class or an 8 a.m. class and be like, if I skip class, I'm burning $400. You know, like I would just have those thoughts in my head. Oh, yes. of just like, oh, yeah. if I don't go to school, it's like I'm just throwing $400 in the trash can. Uh, and I, re I remember the same happened yeah. to me when, well, my uh, I studied uh, graphic design back in my home country, which is Ar Argentina. And education is for free there. Well, we can discuss whether it's for free or not, but you can go to, to, to university just for free. And then when I wanted to um, take a master course in type design, this is where I had to invest like all of my savings. And I remember that yeah. I was, you know, I was the one, we were 11 in that class. And I remember that because I had gone through so much struggle to just pay for that education and move overseas and done all of those things, I appreciated it so much that I was like the first one to be in the class every day. I was just very anxious to, to be at every new lecture and stuff. So I think I totally relate to that. When, when, when you have to go through the hard work, you appreciate it even more. Yeah, though I'm torn because I have, we both have children now. Uh, yeah. And like my husband, his parents like gave him the gift of not having to worry about yeah. education debt. So like when he went to college, they were like, they were the parents that like toured multiple schools and they were like, mm. go where you want to go. We'll pay for your undergrad degree. And he feels like that was like such an amazing gift oh, to yeah. him and that he never had, he never had to worry about debt or anything, which allowed him to like pursue things that he wouldn't have necessarily pursued. And so there's like that camp be yes. like, if you don't have debt, you're free and you can like follow your heart and your dreams. But then there's also the camp of like understanding the value of education. And so we're really like trying to figure out where we both lie because I feel like I was such a know nothing about college when I was in high school that if you would have told me I could go anywhere, I would just look up what the most expensive college was and go there because I would assume it was the best one yeah. instead of like doing the research and figuring out what was the right one for me. And so, you know, as we get closer to the kids getting to college age, just oh, sort of yeah. like figuring out what our what our ethos is going to be, because we won't be able to just straight up be like, college is free, go for it. But like, how much can we like <laughs> tell them we're going to help out like at the beginning part of it? So, yeah. Have you have you found a middle ground for that? Like, have you discussed this and like a little have a bit? Like, I feel okay. like my my thing that I'm pushing for is that we make them take out loans but then pay off their loans for them when they graduate mm. so that they like kind of understand the value of things and then we like tell them we're going to help out and depending on what position that we're in we like do do all of the helping or yeah. do a lot of the helping or whatever it kind of depends on where we'll be financially um but like kind of like playing it down that we don't have like all the money in the world to do it which we don't you know but you know like i uh that's kind of my camp. And he's like, I think we need more straightforward, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, we'll see how they are. And I, but I think it's going to be very case by case, you know, because all kids are different. Like, I think my daughter will make like super smart decisions because she's like basically a grown up already. And then yeah. my middle, my middle son will be like, where are we going? You know, <laughs> <laughs> such a loose, loosey goosey guy. 
Oh, I would love to go into this topic now, but I'm I'm gonna keep myself out of like the parenting and family topics just for a minute before uh, before we dive into that later on. We're gonna speak about all the amazing things that you have done as a lettering artist, author, illustrator, and human being. Um, But I want to know a little bit about the backstory. Like, tell me a little bit about the beginnings where. Perhaps you were still not really clear about what you wanted to do and in which direction you wanted to go with your career. And what were the things that help you find answers to that? Right. I know that yeah, there's so, a big gap between, you know, going to to um, art school and making a career as a lettering artist. But I, I want to talk a little bit or briefly about the, the middle ground where where you're like, OK, yes, I like art. I like drawing but i'm not sure where what how so would you like to share a little bit about this i totally so the way that my college was structured you were not allowed to declare your major right when you were coming into the school which i think Mm. is really good Mm. you know so everybody every student took foundation classes freshman year every student had to take lots and lots of electives sophomore year so you couldn't actually declare your major until the end of your sophomore year Uh, which meant that like, even if you knew you wanted to be a designer, you knew you wanted to be a jeweler or whatever, you were forced to kind of take classes in other disciplines, um, which I felt like was really amazing for me. Um, I thought I was going to be a painter, like a painter, a drawing major, um, just because that was the only real art I ever had exposure to. And I feel like I'm like a 2D person. I'm not much of a 3D person. I don't (sighs) think in the third dimension when it comes to my art. Um, And so... I, but I had to take all the classes. I took glass blowing. I took um, a few different printmaking classes, graphic design, obviously, um, painting and drawing, like all that. And then it was when I, like almost everybody took a graphic design class just because they were like, okay, well, this is the art thing that has a job at the end of it. So I'm at least going to see if it sticks, you know? So everybody <laughs> took graphic design just to sort of see if that was like a viable option. And um, it was for me like, this mega eye-opening moment because I felt like, you know, I had this really tumultuous teenage time, um, but I still felt so like naive and young and that I didn't really have like a voice. Mm. And so the idea of being a fine artist was really intimidating to me because Mm. it was like, oh, I don't have anything to say yet. You know, Mm. like, even though if I would have just like sat down and journaled, I would have had plenty to say, you know, like (laughs) I just felt like I needed an assignment to be creative. And so like graphic design, like really opened up the world for me because like the idea that there's like a brief that you're responding Mm. to and that it's about problem solving, not just about self-expression. That was really like huge for me. And so I just fell in love with graphic design and dove in headfirst and thought it was totally amazing. My school didn't have a really robust illustration program because if it had, I probably would have ended up an illustration major because it's the same deal, but like image making. Um, and so I, you know, was like a crazy person about my classes. I felt like it was a second chance. Like when I was in high school, I transferred high schools from a Catholic school to a public school in my Mm. junior year. And so like my grade point average was really low compared to a lot of the high grade point average people just because they didn't have like weighted classes. So when I graduated, like all the people in the top 20% had like more than a 4.0 because of taking, you know, advanced AP classes and stuff like that. And I just never had the opportunity. Um, And so I just felt like I was kind of like flailing around in high school. And, you know, like I I have that problem where 
I feel like if there's a mistake, like the whole thing is fucked up and then I like have to start over. And so like, I felt like with high school, I was like, there's no way for me to be perfect. So all I can do is be fucked up. And so when I went to college, I kind of like ended up flipping that and being like, this is my time. And so I was like a little bit too intense about it where Mm. like I got the whole time I was in college, I got two A minuses. And other than that, it was all straight A's uh, because I was like, an insane workaholic I was doing like multiple overnighters of like all nighters a week trying to get my work done but I was also just really passionate about it so it was like a combination of like being excited about this thing that I found that I love and then also this like I need to be perfect because I finally have the chance to (laughs) you know so that's the unhealthy side of it and then the healthy (laughs) side is I'm passionate um but then when I graduated um I was working at I had an internship when I was at school. I had a few internships, but one of the standout one was for this place called Headcase Design. And they did like half book design, but it was like really oh, yeah. elaborate book design and then half editorial illustration. Mm-hmm. And just sort of like being involved in this world of like doing both like really heavy handed, very Photoshoppy book design where you're creating a lot of imagery and assets for the books that you're making. Um, and then on top of that, also doing like high turnaround editorial work Um, I started realizing that like illustration was really the path that I wanted to take. And so, and also like all my friends that were designers, like left Philadelphia and got jobs everywhere else. And so all the people that were left were illustrators. And so like all my friends were freelance illustrators. And I was like, this seems amazing. You guys have the life. It's so flexible, like all these different (laughs) kinds of projects, you know? And I just really fell in love with that lifestyle. And so Mm. I was really pursuing being a freelance illustrator Um, and I sent out a bunch of promos trying to get illustration work. And one of the people I sent a promo to was Louise Feely. Mm. And she was like the only one who replied to my promo and ended up offering me a graphic design job, um, which I didn't expect at all. It's not what I was looking for at the time, but I couldn't turn it down because she's like such a legend. And yeah. so I ended up moving to New York and it was really like, while sorry, just, for just a second with that. Yeah. You already knew that you wanted to work in the realm of type design and typography or not, it was not type design, yeah. illustration. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was illustration specifically. And then like, as I was doing the illustration work and having a graphic design day job, I was still like, I want, I love this typography stuff so much Mm. you know like when I was even when I was in college I did a lot of lettering for my stuff on my projects but I didn't know what that was I thought it was like making my own fonts because I was broke um but when I when I got out I was like oh I want to use my graphic design skills but I want to live the life as an illustrator so I'm going to put those two things together and that's sort of how I fell into doing lettering work because I was like oh I'm a graphic designer so I know type and typography Um, but I want to be an illustrator. So I'm going to be an illustrator that illustrates type. And like at the time, uh, you know, like it was like 2006, 2007, there just were not a lot of lettering artists out Mm. out and about in the world. You know, like there were still like people practicing as lettering artists, but the the industry had kind of died just because of personal computing. So like in the 80s and 90s, like lettering was so huge because it was like, that's how you got custom work. But then as soon as people had access to like a lot of different kinds of illustrative fonts, Mm. like the idea of hiring a lettering artist, like shrank the industry. So it was still around, but Mm. it was around in such a small way. And I was like, oh my God, does anyone know about this? It's amazing. And I was like, (laughs) I wanted to talk to everybody about it. So, um, so yeah, it's like, that was sort of my, my aha moment was when I was working for Louise, she obviously does a ton of lettering, but doesn't call it lettering. You know, she just calls it part of her design process. 
and I was incorporating lettering into my editorial illustration and illustration for books and things like that. And more and more people started hiring me just to do the lettering mm. work. And I was so jazzed about it that I just felt like I needed to like tell the whole universe about what lettering was. And so I kind of did for a couple of years. <laughs> yes. And I, I can, I can see now how that had an impact on, you know, how this, this job that you got at Louise Philly, you know, click with you or do you call it like this? Like clicked with you yeah, yeah. in terms of like saying, okay, I can draw and I can still design and it all comes together in typography or drawing letter forms, right? Now, I, I want to ask you a little bit, of course, that was a great school, like working for Louis Philly, just, I can imagine that it was an amazing school in terms of, you know, understanding typography and how can you tell stories with letter forms, right? Um, now, what were the things that after, after that experience that help you get really good at, at your craft um, beyond that well, experience with, with uh, Louise Feely? One of the things that, well, I learned a lot of things while working for Louise. One thing was um, she keeps a super tight ship with her mm -hmm. office, right? So like she does not work after 6 p.m. I never worked after 6 p.m. as a person there. And I, it was just like seeing that healthy separation between mm. like what your day looks like and what your rest of your life looks like was really great. Yeah. I, at the time, was working like a monster after work. <laughs> but because yeah. she had the, those really like tight timelines of what the office was, it allowed me to be able to still work on freelance work at night, which was really helpful mm. in sort of like getting the ball rolling um, with with that side of my career. Um, but I really think I thought a lot about how she manages her office when I think about how I now manage my office. Oh, yeah. Um, another another thing that she did that I found to be so, totally fascinating is she wouldn't make a meeting until all the work was like done and the printouts were done mm -hmm. of the work for the meeting. And so like the idea that you don't even schedule the meeting until the work is done that's really interesting to me. I'm, of course, that's not how I do my things <laughs> because I like need the pressure of the deadline to like get the work done. Um, but I found that to be super helpful. Um, and then I think just sort of like understanding all the places that custom lettering and type can find its way into, mm. you know, like logos, book covers, even like editorial illustration, whatever, just sort of like seeing like the wide gamut that that it's a necessary practice for like allowed me to figure out how to diversify my own work too. you know, like, I, I always, um, I feel like I'm the most I'm really creative when I have like a wide variety of projects. Mm. So I get really burnt out if all my projects are really similar. And that was sort of how, when I worked for Louise, that I was able to like work crazy hours is that my day job was like a totally different job than my evening job. Like if I was drawing restaurant logos and stuff in my evening job, I would be like totally dead to the world. But because my work at night was really different, it felt like these two short independent jobs. And I feel like that now I still carry because like I can't really work on like one particular thing during the day for more than like about four hours. And then mm. I just start like, like losing steam and slowing down. And so just always having things that I can bounce back and forth between mm. um, and making sure that the projects that I take on have enough variety that like, if I'm knee deep in a logo project, I'm not bouncing immediately to another really intense logo project. I'm going from a logo project to a book cover to like a quick invitation to a party to a quick whatever, you know, like, 
just being able to jump between like different scales of the artwork and different styles of artwork, you know, like that's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I can totally. I, I was just going through your your uh, portfolio before getting on the on the show <clears throat> or on the call, and and I of course you have so you know such a huge variety of work, right? And you have done work for a lot of different stuff like editorial and publishing and and advertising campaigns, and and I see that in the last times or in the last years you have narrowed down a little bit. Um, focusing more on to um, logotype design, or at least the things that you share on on Instagram have, have to do a little bit more with your books, which is like children's books, and logotype designs or revamps of logotypes, right? And I want to ask you, how do you, if you still find that interesting, if you if you if you still find um, you know focusing on one type of project or one type or one discipline within lettering if you still find that um appealing or you just do it as a mean of like you know i i just have time to do this one thing and to support my livelihood support my family with that um how do you find the balance between that between you it's know, a mix take... i feel like the you have to sort of take the instagram shares with a grain of salt just because mm. it's so time-based Yeah. And so like right now, my whole Instagram presence is like my book that came out two weeks ago, you know, so it's just like a lot of it is about the book because I have to promote it because it just came out. Um, and then the, with the logo type stuff, like while I'm working on a huge project like a book, mm -hmm. doing logo types is something that's really easy for me to integrate into my schedule because it's like I have a very you know, like regulated process with it and there's, yeah. and it pays fairly well, you know, like, and so I, when I have like a really big book project, I tend to take on more of the logo work. Mm. And then when I don't have a book project, I have more room in my schedule for like all kinds of stuff. Okay. But it's also like, I think a lot of the other kinds of work that I take on, they have like a longer timeline. So for instance, like I've done a ton of work for this bourbon company mm. that it was for like this huge Christmas campaign that ended up getting pushed to next year. So I can't share that until next year. And then I just did a bunch of stuff for them now for another campaign, but that campaign hasn't launched yet. So like, that's the one thing that as you kind of advance in your career as an artist, lettering artist, illustrator, whatever, you're working on things that aren't like an immediate like push, you know, like, in the past, I would be doing like a magazine cover. And oh, yeah. then as soon as the magazine was out, I could share about it. But now it's like, I'll work on something for three months and then it doesn't come out for 10 months. Hmm. And then even when it comes out, I don't necessarily have like the assets because the people that were on their team have now left their team. And now I'm like trying to find contacts of people to send me things. So I don't just have to post like my vector assets on Instagram. Yeah. So like my, uh, I have about like 120 projects that I haven't posted to my site or to Instagram yet from the last couple years. That's bonkers. And so I know it's really bonkers <laughs> and I need to get on a better schedule with doing it because at this point, like there's a few new pieces that I've posted to my portfolio in like the last five years, but not really like yeah. it's, it's not the freshest thing. Instagram is a better reflection of like fresher projects, but even then there's so much stuff that I haven't posted yet just because it's either not live yet or it's a, uh, you know, I don't have the final assets or like whatever. So 
And what would you say? Because I can imagine that someone listening is wondering like, hey, but I, I thought that this was necessary in order to get client assignments, right? I thought, you know, keeping your, your uh, portfolio updated, keeping your, you know, posting on social media or sharing your work is kind of a way of putting yourself out there, right? And, and connecting with other people and potential clients. So what is the, what is the secret behind it? How, how do you continue? It is, I mean, it, it is for sure. I mean, like yeah. I, like, so last year I was working really intensely on this huge campaign for Neiman yeah. Marcus and then also on my kid's book. And so yeah. I had like seven months where it was like, I was just in a creative hole and that was the only thing I was doing. And during that seven months, I wasn't posting on Instagram like at all. Cause I had nothing to say, you know, like I, I could have posted back catalog work, but I was just so busy with those two projects that I didn't get to it. And then right after those projects concluded, which they concluded like at exactly the same time, I had no work for like yeah. five months because wow. I wasn't out there like building up more stuff to come into the pipeline, which like sometimes that's kind of nice, like by design, like I usually don't mind it if it's like a mm. three month break, because then I get to really like catch up on things, you know, like make personal work, uh, make prints for my website, like whatever <clears throat> for my web shop. But it started to get like a little like, oh shit, I need work. Like, I think that's that. <laughs> And also, like, and, you know, a little funky during the pandemic, too. So, and I'm curious, how do you do in those moments where you say, like, okay, now I need to get active and just start moving my strings and uh, getting work? Well, in the past, it has been like Instagram has been a really reliable way to do that. Mm. Um, where <clears throat> if I post a piece or two within two weeks, I have at least a few inquiries. You know, so I'll like when I posted, for instance, like the Squire um, refresh logo that I did for Fender, mm. um, I got like four projects from that, you know, like and that and I'm still working on I'm still finalizing some of those projects from that mm. time. And that was like just a couple of months ago. So I did find that Instagram is like really good for that generally. But um, it's also become a little bit less reliable. I don't know if you could speak to this as well, oh, yeah. um, but I feel like because of the prioritization of reels that I've had like, like spotty engagement over mm. the last six months to eight months. Um, and it's part of it is just because like, I'm not out there being like, check out my new blah, blah, blah with like, <laughs> as a talking head, you know, like, um, cause I'm trying to figure out how to engage with it in a way that feels natural and feels and feels me instead of just like, trying to catch up or trying to just like play the role that they want you to play. Um, but it is tricky because I noticed with a lot of my book stuff, like this was, which has been like the hardest thing, like, you know, like you spend so much time working on a thing. I have copies of my book right next to me, so I'll just show it this way. Yeah, show me. So it's called Big, Who we're Will gonna You add Be? Whoa. Yeah. It looks it has amazing. Many, many letterings. Let me like, uh, there's like a big spread in the middle that I'll just open because it has all the lettering in it. So this is like a double page spread. Anyway, um, so we're going to add this, to, this one to the show notes. So I was trying to promote it, but mm. like the, I have a ton of followers on Instagram. It's like almost 200,000 followers. Mm. But some of the posts that I was posting about my book, because they weren't these like dynamic point at things posts, I was getting like 200 likes and like mm. 3000 views or something, which is not a lot. And so I went to a conference last week in Toronto and was talking to people. And one person came up to me and they were like, oh, my God, I'm such a super fan. I've been following you for 10 years. I had no idea you had a new book out. And wow. I was like, this it's a problem where yes. I've been posting about a thing for a year 
and people that consider themselves like super fans of my work are not necessarily seeing it. So just in the last month or two, I've had to really like recalibrate my strategy for like oh, yeah. how I'm going to get work in the future. I'm trying to prioritize like my newsletter, um, trying to figure out other like non-social media ways to get in touch with people, you know, just because like I'm always going to be on social media, but it's like when it's less reliable, it's like you got to figure out how to, um, you know, work with other means because we've been so reliant on it for so long. Absolutely. And I feel that, you know, in a way you don't, you don't, you don't have control over it. And as you said, like it, it doesn't, you, it's really hard to understand what's going on, what works, what doesn't, right? Because sometimes I have, I have a friend of mine, she told me like, sometimes I post a picture with a ton of text and a long story and it has a lot of engagement. And sometimes I post something that I have worked for a long time, like a video beautiful about all, you know, my life throughout the, an entire month and nothing happens. So it's like, Everybody is trying to crack the code of the new Instagram, but I think it comes down to the to the point that yes, in a way you don't own this platform, right? And it's not yours and I think you are you're smart at just leaning back to your newsletter, which is, you know, the people who really want to hear from you and the people who are But even then it's 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 also tough because you know yeah. people get overloaded in their inboxes too of course, so yeah. you kind of have to you have to do all the things but the main thing is like I'm just trying to be me I'm just trying to not be a fake version of myself in any of these things you know Absolutely. like obviously we have to post about our work in order to get work um but I think like it's really damaging to yourself and your reputation if you end up having to completely change who you are in order to play the game and like people see through it you know like nobody wants to follow people or listen to people that they think are being fake or like aren't being true to themselves and that's been the thing that's worked the best for me like this whole time yeah. is ju just like being true to myself and being like the same person in real life as I am on the internet like when you meet me in real life I am the same person that you see on the internet um And that's really worked. And I feel like I've had a lot of conversations with people recently about how like, it's hard to know who to be on the yeah. internet anymore because oh, yeah. just being yourself doesn't necessarily work. Yeah. And so it's like, it's a very, it's a tricky situation because obviously like as business owners, like people that work for themselves, we have a really different relationship with social media than people that have a day job. You know, like if you have a job, you don't have to care. You don't have yeah. to care about how you're presenting oh, yeah. yourself online other than other than like not wanting to get fired from your job or embarrass yourself <laughs> or whatever. But like as a person who runs their own business, it's like we have been sort of like tricked into putting all of our eggs in those baskets for mm. like the past 10 years. And all of our strategy around our business is around those things. And now because of the tech bubble bursting and things shifting, like, you know, that basket is a little unstable and mm. we have sort of forgotten how to do all the other things. And so mm. it's a really interesting time to be an artist, like trying to get your work out into the world for sure. Yeah. I still would advise anybody um, who is listening. And this is what, what worked for me actually in the last couple of years. That is like, I am glad that from day one I was building my list even I was building my email list in a very discreet way uh, I wasn't really shouting out like hey sign up for my email list but right now 
I really feel that the people I connect with, the people I work with, which is primarily now students that are coming to our academy and that are inside our community, these are people who I reach to through um, my newsletter. And they read my newsletter yeah. every week, you know? And it's like, I'm so grateful that I started building that connection early on uh, because, you know, right now I wouldn't have a way of reaching out to those people other than Instagram and hoping for the best or Twitter or, you know, it's like, um, so I would totally encourage everybody to build their email list, no matter what, um, because that's the only what thing that you, that you own in a way, you know, and it's also like yeah. a format where you can really go deeper into topics, right? Um, and you can really talk about all the things you want to talk about and people can reply to you and can just, um, you can have a conversation with someone. Whereas, I don't know, in, in social media, I feel that nowadays it's so much easier to just ghost people or, you know, connect with haters. That is like, you know, it's one of the reasons why I left Twitter, like, because I felt it was like, well, why am I tweeting here? Like, why, why yeah. do I engage into this, this, uh, these discussions? I don't know. I felt that, um, I was getting more value from other platforms or my newsletter, you know, like, yeah, everything is different. Like it depends on the person. I'm yeah. one of the people that was like a hyper Twitter person. Like I loved Twitter and now Twitter is so sad and not good that mm. it makes me like, I feel like I'm losing a part of who I am because it's yeah. bad. Um, but one thing that but I you're also a very, me, you're also a very smart Twitter and I feel that, you know, I feel that um, if you're a native uh, English speaker, you, you have such an advantage. For me, it was such a waste of time because I was always trying to, like, write the perfect tweet. And on top of that, I had to write it in English. So it was like, okay, I, I just read, like, three hours of my day just because I, I'm out of Twitter. I will say, like, the reason why I enjoyed Twitter so much is because I was able to just be casual on it. And, like, yeah. most of the things I posted about were not about my work. You yeah. know, like, I would just yeah. post random things. And I think that, like, I think people that end up not, like, vibing with Twitter or a similar platform, because there's a yeah. bunch of alternate Twitters now as everyone's trying to find what's the next one, is when you come at a verbal platform like that yeah. as, like, a, like, I'm going to post about my work and here's blah, blah, blah. Like it's very hard to get traction on like work promo stuff on a oh, yeah. platform like that. Whereas to me, like it's more about community engagement. Like that is more of like a chat room yeah. than oh, Instagram, yeah. which is much harder to have that. Like, like you can like, you know, have chats in the comments of your posts, but a lot of the conversations on Instagram happen over DM, which mm. is really different because that doesn't like create a sense of community. It creates like connection, but it doesn't create community. Whereas like sort of conversational platforms like Twitter and like some of these new ones that are popping up, um, it's less about promoting your work and more just about being a part of a conversation with other yeah. creatives. And so that's like, it's, it's tough for people to kind of get a handle on because you're just sort of jumping into this like Times Square, like of people talking, you know, but yeah, but um, I can totally yeah. see that in your approach to Twitter. Like I follow you for a long time when I was in Twitter and I always thought like, oh, she's such a smart Twitter. And I can, I can totally see how you have built your, your relationships there because you also engaged in conversations and they, people were replying to you. So they, they knew that you were present, you know, and I think it makes a lot of sense for a person like you. And as you said, you need to find your platform or the one that works for you, right? 
One um, thing that I was going to say yeah. though, too, about Instagram is that, um, if you are like new on the scene, you're actually at an advantage because oh, yeah. if, if you follow someone, um, like freshly follow someone, you get fed so much more of their content. They're like all over your feed. That's like a, it's like an incentivizer thing, uh, that they have built into the algorithm. So if you've been on there for as long as Martina and I have been on there and a lot of your followers are from like an olden time, you know, like you're not necessarily floating to the top of the pile as much as if you're young and fresh. And I say young, meaning like fresh to the platform, not like young age wise. But if you are just now starting to build an audience, um, you actually are at a huge advantage because your work is going to be seen by more of your followers than people that have been there for a long time. So that's something to think about. Um, another thing with Instagram to know, um, which I know because of having my husband worked at Facebook for a while, mm. and then just knowing so many people that work at Instagram and, and Facebook, is that um, sometimes text-based uh, posts get deprioritized. So like if you, so lettering and typographic posts are like naturally at a disadvantage because they're perceived by the platform as like a uh, advertisement. And I also think that they, um, you know, deprioritize them because of just like moderation reasons. Like, you know, like if something is like static text, um, there's a chance that there a might great, be something. It's a great tip. Yeah. So there's might be something like unsavory in it or whatever as a static, like, you know, text image that doesn't ha that's not captionable or whatever, you oh, know, yeah. so. So lettering and typographic art sometimes doesn't float to the top of the pile mm. because it's either perceived as being an advertisement, which if you're going to post an ad, they want you to pay for it, um, mm. or because it's harder for them to moderate the content because obviously you can say what you want in an image and it's, you know, they're trying to scan it as best they can, but you can hide some shitty stuff in an image <laughs> if you want to, you know, so it's just something to think about that, like sometimes having, um, you know, like the cleaner the type is on a post, the less likely it's going to be seen by people. And I found that to be true where like, if I'm posting about a book tour or something like that, the engagement is like nothing because I'm typesetting it versus mm. if an illustrative lettering piece tends to get more engagement because it's not perceived as being like, just like a typed out ad. You know what I mean? Everyone is taking notes right now. I know that. I know. Uh, so I, I want to, I think this is a perfect segue into the, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, which is, you know, eventually how do you stand out from the crowd right now? I mean, you're an established professional and you have been in the game of lettering for a long time. Uh, so you have already a client base and you are connected with people that know that what you do, but how will you approach this, if you were to start today, and just to give you a, a bit of, of a background of where, where this um, topic is coming from, you know, I feel it was really different 10 years ago um, than it is right now. And, you know, some of the things that we are talking about right now have to do with that. But it's funny because last year I had Alex uh, Trochut. I bet you know him mm -hmm. on the show. Yeah. And he was he was essentially saying that when he started, he had a, you know, he had a, a killer website and he was getting jobs just because he had a killer website. And whereas nowadays having a website seems like to be just one of the myriad of things that you need to do in order to stand out. Um, so how will you approach this if you were to start today? 
Well, there's a few things. So just mm. to piggyback off of the website conversation, mm. I find that how you position yourself on your website has a dramatic impact into what kind of work you get. Mm. So like I knew that I wanted to get more of the logo work just because I was like, this is like pays well. I feel like I have this unique expertise in it that like people that are 24 and just hit the scene might not have, you know? Um, so what I did was just took the logos out of my portfolio and put it as a top level thing, like mm. made it its own thing. Yeah. And anytime that you're like, I want people to know me for this, you have a lot of control about how people perceive you and how you and getting work based on that. So don't take that for granted. Definitely make sure that like, you're looking at your portfolio and saying, what does this say about the work that I want to get? What does this say about me? And you have a lot of control in guiding that conversation to the place where you want it to be. So that's a number one thing that works on websites. It works on social media. It works on all the things like basically the work you put out is the work that you get. So you have to think about the, like the conversation that you're having with your future clients of like, anytime you put something out, you're going, Hey, look, I'm really proud of this. Wouldn't it be cool if you hired me to do this specific thing? And yeah. so like, <clears throat> so there might be work that you do that you think is really good, but that you hated doing. And, and you should not put that in your portfolio, even if it's great, just yeah. because that's the kind of stuff that people will come back to you for. Um, I think like, yes, the industry is crazy different than from when I started. Like me and Alex have known each other forever because we were mm -hmm. in, uh, we've got Young Guns the same year, which was like 2007. Uh, yeah. So, you know, at the time there was like 10 people that were like out and about doing lettering. Um, and it was like, Anybody who was like, oh, what's lettering about could find mm -hmm. like me, Alex, John Contino, like a, a handful of other people that were doing it at the time. And then, of course, the industry like completely exploded. And now there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of people doing lettering. Um, the main one of the main things that I'll say to that is a thing that has always worked well for me and for almost all my other peers that I know is that you need to make friends outside of lettering. You know, like community is really important, obviously. And it's like nice to like know people that do what you do and to be involved in the conversation. But the real magic sauce is being one of the people who does lettering that your friend who is not a lettering person knows. Yeah. You know, like if you are friends with web designers, you're friends with motion designers, you're friends with, you know, like 3D people, you're friends with illustrators, you're friends with graphic designers, brand designers, whatever. Oh, yeah, they're great tip. being involved in their community, like almost more so than your community is going to be yeah. what gets you work, yeah. you know, and it's fun to have like diverse friends that do diverse things, you know, so it's like you look at it as like, it's both like a bonus for your work. And also it's really like enriching to know people that do a lot of different things. Because then too, it helps you because people will come to you. And they'll be like, Hey, I have this project, I think you'll be great for yeah. we need like, 40 illustrated icons and you're like, or uh, 40 animated icons. And you're like, uh, I don't know how to do animation, but you have your animation friends that you can reach out to and you'd be like, Hey, do you want to collab on this? Or, Hey, can I pass this project to you entirely? Because it's not in my wheelhouse. And then all of a sudden that animator person is like, Holy shit, this person's great. Next time someone comes to me and says that they want animated lettering, I'm going to pass it to them or I'm going to work with them or whatever. And so like being really cross-disciplinary in how you network and how you befriend people in the industry is like crazy important. Um, and then the last thing that I'll say is that the times that I have been the most like 
ahead in my career mm. are the times where I'm spending the least time looking sideways. Mm. And so like, it's really easy to just look around of the work all around you and be like, oh my God, that's so great. I want to do stuff that's kind of in that world. Oh, I wish I had discovered this style first. I'm going to just play in that style, like whatever. And if you're always looking sideways, the most you could ever do is catch up. Like you yeah. always feel behind. You always feel like you're never on top of it. And so it's really hard to do uh, to kind of put the blinders on sometimes for that. Yeah. But the times where I've like had the most success in my career were when I just was like, you know what? I feel like doing X. And it just came from like inside. And then I just kind of like pursued it for a while, even if it didn't have any traction, even if there wasn't like some end goal or whatever. And that was always the times where people would be like, oh, wait, what's that person doing? And they would come and take notice because it was like I was doing my own thing. I think James Edmondson is a really good example of this. Mm -hmm. So like James is like a fucking maniac with his type design work so He's james edmondson which i'm gonna i'm gonna invite to the podcast soon yeah. i told him um he is the He's... founder of oh no type um foundry um and oh no creates, type co yeah yes and he creates kind of like display typography um kind of unique style to it um yeah so and he's also living in yeah. in, in san francisco right Yeah, I think he just might have moved to San Jose, but he was in okay. Oakland before that. But oh, okay. he is someone that I just feel is consistently ahead of the curve in what mm. he's working on. And it's just because he's following the things that he's passionate about. Mm. You know, like he will be like, he was so far ahead on the like groovy 70s throwback stuff. Like he was doing it years before it became mainstream. And it's just like, that was a topic of interest to him. And he just mm. started doing it. And I feel like he's one of those people that is always ahead of the game because he's just really good at following things that he's interested in and just like walking into those fires and, and being pumped about it, you know? That's such a good uh, hint right there, just to follow something that you're passionate about. Because I know that... Uh, you know, with, within inside my community of lettering artists and students, like I know that their hardest question is always like, how do I find my style? Right. And I think that oftentimes we believe that finding our styles uh, or style is like uh, or we we often fall into the this side. How did you say it before? Like side side looking loop? sideways. Yeah, it's looking sideways yeah. into what other people is doing and kind of finding cool what other people are doing and being influenced by those and trying to do the same. And I think that a much is much more healthier approach to that to finding your own style is not so much about the shape and the form, but it's about finding the substance that is, you know, that thing that you're truly interested in. And and then the form will come eventually, right? And your style will shine yeah. through. Yeah. One thing that I'll say about finding your style is that as a lettering artist, you kind of need to be a chameleon. Like you mm. want to be able oh, yeah. to work in many different styles because if you have one specific style, your career will be like hot, but short, you know? So you need to I be able it. to work in a lot of different styles, but it's more the, it's more the find your medium. Yeah. Like that's really, when people ask like, how do I find my style? You got to find your medium. You find your medium that you love working in, um, whether that's working on the iPad, whether that's doing vector art, whether that's, like making lettering with food and flowers and whatever, like, or pipe cleaners or like whatever it is that is your favorite medium, embroidery, you know, like yeah. what's the thing that you love to do physically 
like what method of creation is the one that you love to do and then exploring typographic styles with that medium no matter what it's going to look like your style because mm. your hand is doing it it's like there's an exercise um that i used to do because i was doing a lot of in-person workshops when eric and i had a studio together and yeah. one of the things that we did um initially was we um did a workshop in which everybody was trying to draw the a letter from the same alphabet and so we would start with something like garamond or baskerville or something and i would just hold up a letter for a few minutes i'd be like okay stare at this letter for 30 seconds and then i would put it down and i'm like draw that exact letter and everybody would work on their letter and they would draw it but in the end every single one was so different like you know like you, they look like they were from different alphabets and it's because no matter what your hand is going to create your style like your hand and your head and your voice is just going to like happen on paper or on whatever medium that you're working in so you don't have to worry about finding a style because your artistic style will happen mm. just based on how you work and the mediums that you're working in so like if i told you like tomorrow like i want all of you to draw a bifurcated serif in a medium weight that's these two colors or whatever every single person would draw something drastically different even though it's like the same art and so like the what's my style how do i find my style conversation is really just about like what's your artistic process what's the way that you love working that feels most comfortable and then how do i experiment with different styles of typography or image making or whatever within that medium that i've chosen you know that's so good and i also i feel that it's so important to say that you know, as a lettering artist, you don't necessarily, you know, if you work commercially as a lettering artist, you don't necessarily need to have a specific style because you will be needed for very different projects, right? And I think that um, being able to approach different styles, uh, it's actually an asset that you have as a lettering artist. Whereas if you just have one style, once that style is out of trend, then you're out of out of business, right? So I think it's, uh, and it, it can only bring more skill sets into your toolbox, just approaching different styles. It will always be interesting for you, keep it interesting for you, and also be appealing for your potential clients, right? So I want to take a left turn here, and I want to speak about parenting. And, uh, you know, you live in San Francisco, you have three children. Um, they also, of course, have a father, so you can you know, share the parenting work. Still living with kids is a lot about navigating the unexpected. I only have two kids, you have three kids, which I think is like a lot of people. Um, and, <laughs> There's a lot of people. Yes, and I think that, you know, for me, for instance, I feel that, you know, as we had the second child. So with my first child, it was, I felt it was a lot easier when we had the the second child. I, I really had to put some some structures in place, and I really had to think rethink my whole schedule. And I want to ask you, how was that for you? How was that process for you? Because I I read somewhere that you now have you continue working. You you work around thirty five uh, hours a week. And yeah, it's like thirty five to forty. That's good. Um, and I wonder how do you go about organizing your day? What, what were the, the routines or the things that you put in place or the things that have changed radically in order to keep on, you know, having a career as a mother, you know, family owner and all that stuff? 
Well, a big thing um, for me is when I was younger, I really just worked when I wanted to work and didn't work when I didn't want to work, you know, like, Mm, so my schedule was really like all over the place where I would in the morning sketch in a coffee shop for a few hours then Mm. go to the office and have lunch and then work really intensely in the afternoon from like, I don't know, one to six and then have dinner, but then go back to the office and work after dinner. And so I had these sort of like starts and stops throughout the day, but it was very flexible because I had no other responsibilities. So like if I had a crazy deadline, I could go to the office at like seven in the morning and work from seven to midnight or whatever. Oh yeah. Um, But if I didn't, I could sort of like take half a day off or whatever. And the big adjustment with kids is that you are really on this very tight schedule where Mm. it's not like I can be like, oh, I feel like taking Wednesday off. So I'll just work Saturday instead. Like that's not a thing. And so my schedule, um, I pretty much get to the office at like 930, Mm. uh, 930 to 10. And then I'm here until five or 530. Um, it's flexed a little bit more that we switched preschools because our previous preschool, I had to pick up my son at five, which mm. meant I had to leave the office at four thirty, which is a very short day. Mm. Um, but having childcare is really just the big thing and just like being able to afford childcare. And so my two older kids are now in public school, which is great because their childcare is just me paying for aftercare, which is like for my oldest 500 a month and for my middle 750 a month but they get bused from their school to their aftercare. Mm. And and then they're there until six o'clock, you know, like I can pick them up up until six o'clock. And then my youngest is in preschool and his preschool is about $2,000 a month. And it goes from nine to six also. Mm. So it's like a full day. Like there's a lot of people who don't have access to full day preschool or full day Mm. care. And it's a lot harder to manage your career when you have to pick a kid up at 1 PM, you know, like, so, I think like the main advice that I have for that is I think a lot of moms feel that they need to take on the responsibility of covering the cost of childcare with their salaries. When you really have to think about it as being like you're splitting it with your partner if you have a partner. And so like, it's like you get in this headspace where you're like, oh my God, well, if the nanny, like when we had a baby, it was like we had to have a nanny and the nanny costs $45,000 a year. Mm. Like I need to make at least $45,000 a year slash double that in order to cover the nanny. But no, you like, you're covering half of that. Mm. So don't take on the pressure to have like the whole childcare cost being under like one parent's umbrella. So it's like, you're sharing that responsibility. That was like a big mind flip that I had to do. Mm. Um, my mom lives here now, which is really nice. So now we have extra babysitting and like oh, that's amazing. care. It is, it's a crazy game changer because previously, yeah. like the way that a lot of creative couples are set up uh, or just couples in general is somebody mm-hmm. has a really inflexible job and somebody has a really flexible job. Yeah. And that usually is like the guy has an inflexible job and the woman has a flexible job. And I've read a bunch of studies about like gender inequality. And like, that's one of the big things is that like a lot of uh, women or people with uteri who plan to have children uh, mm. in their life, they make adjustments from very early on in their mm. career to allow for that flexibility, which then means that sometimes their pay is not equivalent to people that don't make any of those changes. Um, and then you get into this role where like, as the flexible parent, you're the dentist appointment person, the, you know, like six day person, like whatever. And when you have more than one kid, those things add up really quickly. Yeah. So um, the thing that's worked for us is that because I am the more flexible uh, schedule, 
I take all the random things that happen, like the six, the six mm. days, the like, pick me up early. Cause I, whatever, you know, like what, I, I take all the things that are unforeseen. And then my husband who has a more uh, inflexible schedule, he takes all the scheduled stuff. So he does all the doctor appointments, the dentist appointments, the things that he can put on a calendar. Mm. And so that's been very good for us. But at the same time, like we have to sort of play it by ear and be flexible as well, because like, for instance, this morning, Martina and I are on very different time zones. So I had to leave my house at 7.30 to come to the office to do the yeah. podcast. And normally because he works from home and I work from my office, I'm the one that drops the our preschooler off in the morning and brings the kids to the bus stop. Um, and so because I had to leave early, he's taking the kids, all, all, all of them to school. But right. it's just sort of like we play it by ear with that. Like I travel more than he does. So when I travel, he for work stuff he covers the, you know, all the childcare stuff during that time. And then when he has a summit thing for work, then I'm covering it. So you just always have to have like a really clear line of communication is like the biggest thing, but we're very much like co-parent. And I feel like he actually does kind of more like hard labor in the house than I do. Cause I do all the soft labor. I do all the paperwork and he does all Well, the I mean, come on, stuff. we did a hard label ourselves. Like, I, you know, like it's really, true. it's true. I mean, I feel that, you know, in the first years, um, having children and now with my husband we have kind of switched um, roles in terms of like he's taking more of the um, doctor appointments and if kids need to stay home because they are sick or whatever he's taking on more of that job whereas I feel that in the in the earlier years I was taking on that job not only in in those specific occasions but also because I was physically involved into keeping our kids alive yeah. and, and I was yeah. also going through postpartum and trying to recover myself so I feel that we we he needed to catch up you know so we had this conversation in terms of like hey wait I mean I carried our kids in inside me for so many years and um and I would love for you to now step a step up and and kind of take on the role or like a stronger role into taking care of them so i think this is also a conversation that we can have um in inside our families right because i know that as a woman and you you may have experienced that as well that as a woman when you want to continue with your career and you have kids uh, people start questioning a lot of things that you do um, you know, you go to conferences and people ask you like, where are your kids? And it's like, you know, they're at home. Yeah, who's their... watching, who's watching the kids? Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's like, and, and I, I feel that we are much more like in the spotlight when it comes to those things, whereas men are like, you know, no one questions them when they're away from home. Right. So it's not only yeah. like the, the actual pressure, but it's also the social pressure, um, to stay at home, you know? I do feel like I've seen a little bit of a shift over the last couple of years yeah. where I feel because I think part of it is like the everybody working from home situation. Oh yeah. Um, because of the pandemic that I find that I get less questions about where are the kids than I used to, because I think they know that at least somebody's working from home. Um, <laughs> but, but to circle back on like the social media thing, that was like a huge deal when I had my daughter was that mm -hmm. like, when you're a new mom, you don't have shit going on except for momming. And it's like really important to you. And yeah. if you've always just been yourself on the internet, you're like, oh, I'm gonna, for a couple months, share the thing that is the most important thing to me, this new thing that I'm doing. 
Um, even though like, you know, like when I took maternity leave for all three of my kids, I was really like off for like three months hmm. and then was like working after that. Um, but with Ramona, I just like didn't have a lot of new things to post on social media about work stuff at the time and was so like, you know, on top of it about sharing my like weekly pick of my daughter or whatever that everyone just assumed I wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And so like I was still working a lot, but I would get emails from art directors being like, hey, I don't know if you're still like, like on mat leave, but I have a project that might be good for you. And it was like 13 months after I had a baby. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, for every email that I'm getting, of like a person being very gracious and like, you know, asking me if I am taking on work, there's like 10 X the amount of people that are just not contacting me because they're making an assumption about it. And so I think as like a parent, but specifically as a woman, because I think that uh, dads don't encounter this as much if they share about their kids online. Um, As a woman, if you share about your kids and leave them in the grid, you know, like if they're a part of the visual story of who you are, um, that people definitely make an assumption that you're not working very hard or that you're part-time or that you're like, you know, uh, m- being a mom is your primetime job. And so I've had to be really conscious of that in how I like manage my online presence now where I still share about the kids, but I only share about them in stories. And if I share about them on the main grid, I archive it like a week later, you know, I just don't let it stay up there. And part of that is like respecting their privacy as people that like deserve a right to privacy by not Mm. like having them exist on the internet in all these crazy ways on my big platform. But, um, but it's actually more self-serving. It's more of like me being like, I don't want to be publicly perceived as like that being a mom is my top thing, even though it kind of is my top thing, you know, because of course, (laughs) like if you're a mom, it's your top thing, you know, like you can't, you can't be like, oh, my work's more important than my, my kids. Like my kids are of course, like the top thing in my life. But I want clients to see that I'm still a working person, that I'm working hard, that I'm taking on all kinds of projects, that I have the capacity to take on their project. And if the perception is that I'm like mostly being a mom, they're just going to make assumptions that I'm not here. They also, everyone always assumes that I work from home once I have kids. And I'm, I'm the one in the house that has their own office and my yeah. husband is the one that works from home. So that's been like, you know, they're like, oh, wow, is that your home office? It's so nice. And I was like, nope, it's my separate office that I drive to every day because I have an office and an employee, you know. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, but totally. I think that still right now people make a lot of assumptions around um, mothers or working mothers. And I think it's great that you that you raise up this point of like, well, I'm going to keep some some of that for my private life or for when it comes to social media presence for stories so that people don't assume things that are not real. Right. And I yeah, love that. The main thing I'm going like, to take it for myself as well. Yeah. It's about like, how do I want, like dress for the job you want, you know, like that's like a phrase that we've heard like our whole lives dress for the job you want. Yeah. If people see you in dressed as a thing that you don't want them to be, that you don't want to be perceived as that, that's on you to like change that perception. You know, like if you show up to the job every day and you're dressed in athleisure and you're like sloppy and un, uh, unkempt or whatever, people aren't going to include you in the meeting with the CEO, you yeah. know, like, but if you show up and you're polished and you've got your shit together and, you know, it's very clear that you like are bringing your whole self to it through how you manage the perception of you like it really changes the game. Like it's wild how much it changes the game. I make jokes that like this office does a lot of work for me because like <laughs> I'll be on a meeting and, and like clients will be like, 
where are you? Is that like a Zoom background? And I'm like, nope, this is my nice, lovely big <laughs> office that I'm at every day. And they're like, oh, you must know what you're doing, you know? Like, and I feel like certain things like that can make a difference. You know, like how you present yourself in the world makes a huge difference in how people perceive you, how much they want to pay you, you know, of like course. all kinds of stuff. Of course, and that circles back to, to what we um, talked about before, which was like, you know, dress your website in a way that also presents your best work and also speak to the people about what you're great at, right? And direct that yeah. people to those specific projects that you want them to see and you want to get more of, right? Jessica, it was so great talking to you today. And I know we're running out of time right now, but I want to ask you, for all of those listening they must, many of them must, may know your work. I, if not, I'm going to add a link to uh, Jessica's website on the show notes and all of your books. I wanted to touch on your books today, but we didn't, we didn't have time to do that. But uh, still, I wanted to, to have some last words about what would be things that you would say or what, which kind of strong advice would you say to someone that is studying right now? People that are, you know, coming into the illustration and lettering world and they feel that there's a lot of people out there doing work and doing great work and they get to be out there with their work on social media on the internet what would you say to those people to to give them a hint of motivation to go ahead and just pursue their their dreams or their goals well i think like this might feel a little bit of an intimidating bit of advice, but one of the things to remember is that there's a lot of people right now for you, right? When you first graduate, you're surrounded by like just a billion extremely motivated, extremely talented people. The amount of people that stay involved in the industry and in the conversation starts to dwindle as you mm. get older. And so all that you have to do to be successful is just stay involved. Just mm. don't drop off, you know, like whatever you're doing, just keep doing it, you know, like, because eventually, and I, there are so many people that I've made friends with in the industry that like, if I would have looked at their portfolio when we were at the same age, I'd be like, you know, like, I guess their work's okay or whatever, but they've just like stayed involved oh, yeah. and like, like, you know, figured out how to be a part of the community, figured out how to like, be it like a cool enough person facilitating shit, like, you know, like making sure that um, people feel lifted up that now that we're like 10 years out, they're like a leader, you know, like, and that just, that just happens if you stay involved and you stay motivated in the community. And so like, don't feel intimidated, um, you know, about like diving in because like most people just won't keep the momentum to stay. And as long as you can just figure out how to keep creating like you will have success. I guarantee you, no matter what, like, I swear to God, every person that I know from college who was a fine artist, who was a painter, um, who kept doing their weird shit for 10 straight years, they're having like shows at the Whitney now. It's crazy. Like all you have to do is persevere. Like you just stick with it and you will, you will find success. There's no way that you won't. I'm just telling you, like if you can stick around, you will be successful. And so for now, experiment, have fun, do things that drive you, like try doing stuff from within, try not trying to catch up with what you see out in the world. Hmm. Um, if a new technology sounds interesting, try it. If you wanna try your hand at coding or using chat GP3 to 
for to code things for you, like whatever, like try all the things. Like it's really important to just dip your toes in all the things to see what sticks. And when you're young, you're really capable of that. When you're fresh, you have like growth mindset coming out every fucking pore. Whereas now I feel like I have to like do mushrooms to like have growth mindset. I swear to God, it's like, <laughs> I'm getting old and like, I just am so static. And like, every time that I like need to like be like, oh wow, I can learn a new thing. I have to like take a flip and drug to do it or something. <laughs> so I would <laughs> say like, use that growth mindset now, learn all the things. Uh, it gets harder to be excited about learning the older that you get. So just like, don't look at everything as like an intimidating uh, thing to do, look at it as a, an opportunity because now is the time where you're like a sponge and you can do all those things. So just like cherish it. I, I love it. And you're, you're also a great example <laughs> of that. No, I think it's, you know, bottom line, line is play the long game. You know, it's not going to happen like right away. You know, you need to develop your skill. You need to develop your, your art. You need to find what, what you're great at. And that takes time. You know, it takes years. Well, also, I think Martina and I could both probably speak to this. When you have a career where you've kind of like hockey stick up to a really top level quickly, it's actually so much harder to stay on top of the mountain than mm. it is to slowly climb the mountain. Yeah. And that's something to remember is that it's not a race to the top mm. because the top is really hard to stay at. Mm. Like once you hit the top, staying at the top is hard. Everybody wants to knock you off the top because they're looking for the next person to be on the top. And mm. so don't try to get to the top, try to climb try to climb slowly and steadily and improve and do great work or whatever, but do not try to race to be at the tippy top of your career in six months. It's, it's unsustainable. It's not healthy. And it's really oh, yeah. tough once you hit that, once you hit that moment to actually figure out how to stay up there or to figure out how to grow from that. And so like, don't look at like, I haven't had my viral success moment as being a negative. That's a positive it's really much better to have sort of a working your way up career in which you have like moments of victory, but you're on a steady climb rather than having this like one massive thing that brings you all the way to the top. And then you're just clawing your way to stay on there for the rest of your life. I love it. I know what's going to be our snippet from this podcast. <laughs> and you just <laughs> said the thing. So just to wrap up the podcast, I normally play a little game, which is called finish the sentence. Have you ever uh, played it? So I essentially I started so. like I start a sentence and you finish it. <laughs> Are you ready? Sounds good. Yeah. I could never get bored of my kid. Style is style is personal. I'm a little embarrassed about the fact that I know so little about that's a toughie. Um Hmm. What do I know so little about that I'm embarrassed about it? I'm kind of like a, I don't know. I'm like a deep diver in a lot of topics. So <laughs> I know. <laughs> I feel like there's nothing that I'm like embarrassed. I don't know things about. I kind of wish I knew I had more skills in animation and motion and uh, yeah, mostly like motion design. Fair enough. If I wouldn't be doing this for a living, I would be. Uh, Something in human biology or the sciences, because I'm obsessed with learning about body stuff. Amazing. So my husband always tells me that 
Oh, that's, that's, that's what his thing. Oh, my, oh, got it. That's the next one. My husband always tells me that, um, <laughs> I need to calm down about, I don't know. Like, I think my, uh, our, our biggest, uh, when we try to cr- collaborate creatively, I'm like way too in the weeds on minutia and I cannot see big picture. Like I'm so bad at galaxy brain and big picture. So I would say it's something around, he tells, he tells me that I'm too focused on the details that don't matter. If I were to start again, I would definitely. Uh, if I were to study, I would do therapy much earlier. Mm. Jessica, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Where can people find you? Uh, people can find me at jessicahish.is slash awesome or Mm -hmm. at Jessica Hish on all the platforms that you can find me on. Um, And then I also have a shop, jessicahish.shop. Amazing. I'm going to add all of this to the show notes so that people can find you. Again, thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you, everybody, for listening today. See you on the next episode of Open Studio. Bye-bye. So this is it. I hope you loved this episode. You can find me, the host of the show, on social networks at Martina Flor on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have a question or comments, go to martinaflor.com slash podcast, where you can see previous episodes, find show notes, and send voice memos with your comments and questions. You can also watch these episodes on YouTube. Just go to martinaflor.com slash YouTube to find them. You can, of course, listen to all our episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you loved this episode, subscribe to this podcast. And if you leave us a review, it will help others find us. Thank you all for listening and see you in the next episode of Martina Flores Open Studio. Bye-bye. Hey, learning and mastering hand lettering can be incredibly overwhelming and frustrating. However, a proven framework can help you see real progress, populate a portfolio with standout work, attract paid assignments, and become your source of income. Sign up for my upcoming free masterclass called A Roadmap to Master the Art of Hand Lettering and Unlock Your Full Potential as an Artist. Hear what previous students have said about it. Hi, my name is Joke and I'm a lettering artist from the Netherlands. I always thought I knew about letter forms and how to create them. But somehow, whenever my lettering was off, I never quite knew what it was or how to correct it. I now feel a lot more confident in my lettering and I know what to look for. I know how to correct my own mistakes and it's amazing. Sign up now through the link in the description of the episode. I'll see you there.